0: Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. It's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, Welcome. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your content. And please be sure to follow us on social media at Breast Cancer Conversations. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. The interviews and connecting with all of you, our listeners, and audience is the fun part. But there is a lot of sweat and joy that come from the relentless hours of post-production and editing that we do each week to bring our podcast to life. My heart and soul could not be more passionate and committed each week to delivering inspiration, hope, and support. That's why I've decided to make the decision to partner with Podigy to help with the back end of editing. If you have a podcast or are thinking about starting one, I highly recommend them. They are super easy to work with, they provide great advice and customer support, and they offer our listeners 25% off your first month when you mention our podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations. We know cancer takes a village, and I'm glad to have Prodigy part of our support team. We have a great lineup for you today. We are speaking with Dr. Beverly Zavalata. Dr. Zavalata is a board-certified family physician, cancer survivor, and longtime advocate of patient education. After receiving her medical degree from Harvard Medical School, she completed her residency training in family medicine at Christus Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. In 2015, she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Topics that we cover in this hour-long episode include high risk. For example, if you get routine mammograms and even biopsies, which come back negative, it almost normalizes the experience. Imagine the shock you receive on your seventh biopsy that returns a positive result. We also talk about 30% of breast cancer risks are in our control. So let's maximize what we can do. We share tips on lifestyle recommendations and Dr. Zavalada's book, Braving Chemo. We dive into some of her chapters on mindset, tips for managing chemotherapy side effects, including insomnia, infection prevention, nutrition, and everything you need to know about chemo and supplements. This episode is content packed. Welcome to the conversation. So we are here today with Dr. Sevaleta who joins us and you have a very interesting story from what I can tell with your medical background, also with your diagnosis with breast cancer and then also um, you're an author and speaker and wrote this amazing book, um, Braving Chemo. So we're thrilled to have you on Breast Cancer Conversations today. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here and speak to all of
1: your listeners and I completely agree. It's such a wonderful way to reach out to people. And the key is helping the community because we're all in this together and helping people get through it and live their best life. So I'm all about that. So I'm really pleased to be here. I'm trained as a family physician. I got my medical degree at Harvard and then moved to San Antonio and was residency trained there in family medicine. I practiced for many, many years and got married and moved to Brownsville, Texas with my husband and our boys and continued to practice family medicine. I moved into hospital medicine after several years and uh, was practicing doing that. And I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And of course, that just throws a wrench in your world and you uh, everything comes to a grinding halt and you have to uh, work on getting healthy and saving your life. It's basically survival mode. And throughout that process, I became kind of a magnet for people asking me questions about, I mean, obviously, as a medical clinician, it's my job to answer questions. That's what I do all day. But then I was out of work during my treatment. And even then, people, uh, friends, acquaintances, neighbors, things like that, still were asking me questions, which I'm happy to answer. But I became a cancer magnet, which I think happens even to lay people. I'd be interested if your listeners would respond to that conversation. I think the cancer patient becomes the neighborhood expert, and everybody wants to know your experience, which actually is good, because that's how we create a greater body of knowledge that we can maybe talk about it more later, but uh, there's a huge group of cancer advocates because people's personal experience, this is what actually then creates new ideas for research. And that voice is extremely important. So anyway, back to the main story I was stuck in my house being treated. I, I couldn't work. Entirely because my chemotherapy regimen was so intense because of the type of cancer I had. And the work that I, my job was entirely in the hospital exposed to these really nasty germs. And it was 12 hour, 13 hour shifts that was completely incompatible with working. So I was bored and isolated. And so I was happy to help other people. And I did a lot of texting and emailing and talking to different people and friends and cousins and, and, Uh, all across the country. And after several months, one of my friends said, you really should write a book because you have all these materials that you've sent to people, helping them through different experiences. And I didn't do it at first, but she kept urging me to do it. So I did eventually. And that's how the book was born.
0: Wonderful. If, just to back up a little bit too, if you don't mind sharing, yeah. when were you diagnosed? Do you mind sharing a little bit more about your type yeah. of cancer that you had, the stage? Um And kind of letting our listeners know, because I think it's always great to relate. And one of the things that we do with survivingbreastcancer.org and also here in the podcast is I know for myself, I wanted to find someone with my exact match, right? I wanted to connect with someone Uh who had been through the chemotherapy regimen that I went through, the type of surgery that I was experiencing and went through, especially as I was navigating all of the options that were available to me. I wanted to talk to the people who had like the deep flap surgery or talk to people who had implants or talk to people who decided to do a breast conservation type of procedure. So for me, that was like, where's my, where's my breast cancer twin out there? Where are they? Yes, sure. Well, then let me back up a little
1: bit. And this is great. I I have not discussed this part because Braving Chemo is a chemotherapy book. It's not a breast cancer specific book, which is fine. Mm -hmm. So this is actually an opportunity to talk about this a little bit more.
0: And only if you're comfortable. Don't feel like you have to disclose yeah, anything no, that no, you don't want to fine.
1: talk about. I have a condition called breast fibroadenoma. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with that. No. Well, I don't have it anymore. <laughs> Excellent. But um, from my teenage years, I have been, had been developing the nine breast tumors called fibroadenomas. They can grow very quickly. They're these rubbery, round, smooth masses, nodules, and they're very responsive to puberty. So actually it's common in the teenage years that they start. And the trajectory is you get them and you typically grow a lot of them. And the genetics are not understood trust me, I researched that up, down, and sideways. So from the time I was a teenager, I actually had I had a surgery. I had them removed. It was confirmed. This is back in the 80s, okay, a lo- long time ago, and confirmed fibroadenoma. So I was in a high-risk surveillance from the time I was 17. Wow. <laughs> so I was periodically, everywhere I moved through college and then various places, always establishing at a breast care clinic. I mean, it was kind of the story of my life. And luckily, I had very good care. Uh, I went to undergrad at University of Michigan, which is a premier breast care center in the country. And a very experienced older surgeon, don't remember his name, he's probably passed by now because this is in the 90s. And he was very wise and conservative and said, we're not going to turn you into a roadmap and take all of these things out. We'll just cut, in other words, cutting you up at the age of 21 doesn't make any sense. We know what these are. We'll monitor you with ultrasound. So fast forward, by the time I was getting mammograms, I started at 35 because I was high risk, which make sure the listeners understand is not typical, but for high risk groups, it's different. So, I was a very experienced mammogrammer, ultrasounder, it, it, you know, self breast examiner. And for me, so by the time I was 43 and got my, I mean, I probably had had 50 scans of one type or another. But once I was in my 40s, I started getting biopsies. I had had seven biopsies already by the time I got one that came up bad, but I'll oh tell you, gosh. I actually was very surprised because I know that there's much discussion of, Oh my gosh, there's something there. I need to get a biopsy and I'm not minimizing it. It's it's terrifying every time you do that. However, I had had so many <laughs> that I, it was like, Oh yeah, whatever. Number seven, you know, it, it, It almost became so, well, yeah, it was routine. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. that particular lump was not anything that felt any different than numbers one through six for me. So I I was just as blindsided as the person for whom it was their first biopsy. Exactly. Which is such an irony that I, you know, I guess I could have felt like, oh, it was my destiny, but I didn't feel like that at all. I was just as blindsided. So, the reason also for the long run up is that by the time I had this uh, biopsy, it came back triple negative breast cancer, which is more aggressive out of the gate than, say, estrogen and progesterone positive, HER2 negative. That would be slight, that type tends to be a little more what we call indolent, like slow growing than the triple negative. That was my uh, tissue type, my tumor type. And I was, from the day I was biopsied, I believe it was 14 days and I was in the chemo chair. Had a mm-hmm. port, getting chemo. And yeah. so it was just that tornado. So even for me, even though I had been being scanned and biopsied since I was 17. Wow. So, yeah. And then it took a while for the dust to settle and to kind of get my head on straight. And as a, as a physician, I, I did a lot of research, but not for several weeks. I mean, again, I stuck sort of stuck my head in the sand or just kind of hung on for dear life to what was happening. It just started, started the treatment, Yeah, you yeah. know, to, to get through it like anybody else does.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. And I think you bring up a lot of great points that you know, I mean, again, I know we have some discussions to talk about specifically braving chemo in your book, but I think this is really great context too. And very educational because, you know, to start from the beginning of this like high risk idea, right. That Mm -hmm. did you have any genetic testing done or is breast cancer part of your family history at all? So
1: it's not, and I actually have a huge family. Both my parents are one of eight and my dad is a prostate cancer survivor and he, he also had an in-situ melanoma and there are some genetic mutations that link prostate and breast cancer together yes uh, but I had myriad genetics testing and I didn't I came out negative for everything for the BRCA genes as well as I believe I was tested for eight different ones mm-hmm. the panels now test I mean, this was four years ago that I was tested. Now they test for many, many more, or you can test for many more, depending on the circumstances. But I was negative for all of them. So you could do a whole podcast on genetic testing, okay? But a huge percentage of cancers are random mutation. It's an estimate of about um, 70%, which is really tough, I think, for a lot of people to accept that. Or, well, it's either hard, It's either good news or bad news, depending what kind of person you are. Mm-hmm. For me, I actually felt to some extent like it was good news because I, I think there's a lot of blaming in the cancer community at large. Like, oh, I just shouldn't have eaten that ice cream or right. I should have exercised more. It's my fault. I brought this on myself and I do not ascribe to that. There, we just should not be blaming the victim here. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't eat healthy and exercise. We should. Absolutely we should. I'm a doctor. I recommend those things to patients every single day. Yes. <laughs> and I try to do them. I try even if it's 2 minutes of breathing exercise and that's all I get. However, there shouldn't be any blaming. And so learning that, hey, I had a random mutation cancer. So it is what it is and I you know, so my struggle is just kind of letting go of it. What's
0: happens. Happens. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I know our listeners know a little bit more about my history, but just to give you some background, I was mm-hmm. a strict vegan for, I would say now like half of my life, worked oh out regularly. Goodness. Like I yeah. was like, my whole lifestyle was, you know, I mm-hmm. became a vegetarian at the age of 16 and then slowly morphed into being a vegan and then got diagnosed with breast cancer at 35 or no, 34, actually right before my 35th birthday. And, yeah. you know, it was just complete left field. So I understand what you're saying, whether it's your first yeah. biopsy or your seventh biopsy, you're just like, oh my gosh, how could this happen to me? We definitely yeah. talk in the breast cancer community a lot about, you don't want to feel like you're, you know, breast cancer shaming or self blame or trying to figure out mm-hmm. why. And I resonate so much because I did some genetic testing and one of my genes came back with that um, variance of unknown significance. And yeah. so- just recently, actually, I got a letter in the mail saying that that gene has been classified now. It is considered negative. So on one okay. on one degree, I was like, oh, that's great news. I'm so excited. And then on the other news, right, right I was like, but then why? Right. Why do I have this right. sporadic diagnosis? Yes. There's no genetic history, family history. And I'm actually working on a research paper right now. We're going to be presenting at a conference um, at the end of February specifically on genetic testing and the complex decision-making process that goes into yes. women mm-hmm. who either want to know if they have a predisposition to it or have been diagnosed and decide whether or not to do the genetic testing because it's one yes. of those things yes. that's no longer individual right it's like here's right. information and it's really going to change family dynamics potentially or treatment options so
1: yes i agree are for your children yes for your extended family. It does. Oh,
0: absolutely. So,
1: if you don't mind, I actually have another caveat to that whole lifestyle. And the last talk I gave to a group, I talked about lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that, so for people who have had a really healthy lifestyle for a long time and still get cancer, which is many, many people, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people, I actually, again, because it was a few years ago that a huge study did come out with the 70-30 split, 30% lifestyle and environmental factors, and 70% random mutation. You can either say, I, I feel like there's two camps. There's the camp of, oh, well, forget it. Why? What's the point of doing lifestyle anyway? Just drink up and <laughs> and eat, eat garbage and whatever. Or you can be, my my, my take on that is, no, that means there's 30% that you can control. So why not maximize whatever you can do? Mm -hmm. So what I felt, because, I mean, I wasn't a marathon runner or anything, but I tried to get some exercise in and ate a lot of vegetables and, you know, tried to follow the Mediterranean diet and things like that. I felt like, wow, if I hadn't done that, maybe I would have gotten cancer at 33 instead of 43. And right. so obviously those are unanswerable questions. You will never know that that's like a debate you're going to have till three in the morning. You're, that mm-hmm. is unknown. And so again, you can't be blaming and shaming because right. it's unknowable, mm-hmm. but everybody has to find for themselves that balance of living their best life for them and let everybody else do the same
0: a hundred percent exactly and speaking of being that like magnet when you get diagnosed with cancer somehow you get that um title of also expert and then everyone shares their opinion of whether or not you should like you ate too much sugar you didn't have enough kale and you know the whole gamut so i totally agree that when we can do something that's personal and agreeable to ourselves and that's when we can really start feeling whole again and start healing too yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit and now going, thank you so much for sharing your background as well. I think that gives our listeners some context and some some relatable points as well, especially with triple negative breast cancer. And then mm-hmm. the, the high risk piece too. I think that's something that I'm really trying to promote through our nonprofit is that preventative care, right? So what are the lifestyle changes that we could do to prevent breast cancer from coming that 30% that you're talking about? And then speaking with other women who are starting to get tested, you know, whether it's a mammogram or MRI, you know, every six months kind of rotating between the two to make sure that they're getting screenings and, you know, being able to catch something as early as possible in the event that it doesn't So yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you wrote this book, Braving Chemo, and I like that it's kind of broad, not just breast cancer, but chemotherapy with regards to any type of cancers. And I was reading the first chapter of your book a little bit, and you give such great advice about, you know, resources that people can tap into, how to kind of navigate. Like, I think you compare it to like being in a triathlon, right? You talk about like, okay, how do I put myself up? I'm getting to the start line. And I remember myself, I'm not sure what your experience was, but I had my port placed the same day I had my first chemo infusion. And I just remember I was in the Gownie and they're putting me on this little chair to go in. You're kind of under mild sedation. They place the port then they bring you upstairs to the infusion center and we're just like ready to go. And I just remember like waving bye to my boyfriend and was like, all right, there's like no turning back. Like this is the beginning of whatever journey lies ahead. Like life as we know it, is not changed?
1: Yeah, definitely what I wanted to share in the beginning. So the first section The very first section, I have an introduction where I talk about a little background and why I wrote the book, which is what I shared. Mm -hmm. Chapter one is called Getting Started. And the very first, the book is broken down into seven main chapters, but then within that little mini sections, because when you're having chemo, you're again, at the beginning, you're just overwhelmed. And even going through it in the best of worlds, you get more and more tired as you go through because Mm -hmm. the treatment starts to wear on you. So I really wanted it in little digestible bites so that you could turn to any page, whatever you need to read that day, or someone could read it to you. I right. mean, honestly, mm-hmm. and I am planning to do an audiobook oh, cool. so that if you just don't have the, because I actually had trouble reading. I, I, I listened to several audiobooks. So, so that's going to be coming probably in a few months. Exciting. Um, the very first section is called get your game up because what happened to me was after the dust settled and I kind of felt like getting, you know, I needed to get my head together was this sense of finding my center, finding my core. And it felt like gearing up for an event. It felt like, again, if you want to use the sports metaphor or for giving a talk or for getting, going into labor, having a baby or I mean, whatever metaphor fits you, that's what you need to do. And I see this in the hospital taking care of patients too, where when I see somebody and it can apply to any illness, but I, especially when I, I see patients in the middle of chemo and they're just beaten down, I try to tap into that core and get them to, to feel it too and say, tap into that. Let's get your game on. And that's the way you're going to be able to move forward that's something that is not related to the specific medicine you're taking or the specific food you eat it it's almost what came to my mind was it's almost spiritual but not in a religious sense it doesn't right. matter what religion you are but it really is something intangible it's you know obviously not something that i was taught in medical school but it's so so important to being successful absolutely and so get your game on is how the book starts And you got to reach in, reach deep inside and find that so that you can,
0: you can do this thing. Exactly. Exactly. It definitely takes a toll on your physical, your mental, your emotional. There's so much that gets impacted by chemotherapy. I was doing a little bit of research or one of the genres that I'm enjoying reading right now is on positive psychology and kind of going (laughs) back into similar to what you were saying is like. Okay, it's not spiritual, but there's something bigger than us that we can ignite, whether it's through different parts of our cognition or developing different aspects of our brain that, you know, we only I think we only use like 10% of our brain, I think was a statistic or something. But there's a way to like elevate this higher self of ourselves to really, you know, if your body is put into this fight or flight mode, because you have cancer, and you're constantly at this elevated level of like stress and really trying to... There's worry and anxiety and um, could lead to depression. It could lead to all sorts of just mental health and well being. I think being able to mm-hmm. hone in on that internal deep dive of telling yourself, how can I get through this? What's important to me? What am I going to do every single day that's going to give me peace? You know, whether it is taking mm-hmm. a nap, taking a walk, you know, reading a book, whether it's, you know, maybe just like a page or two, depending on how tired you are. So, right. So
1: I'm glad you mentioned stress, (laughs) and I have several mini-sections about that. I will give a shout-out. The work of Kelly McGonigal at Stanford was very informative to how I approached this, as well as the work of Amy Cuddy. I had been reading their work uh, for the past uh, year or so, you know, during the few years that I was working on this because it took me a few years.
0: <laughs> I bet. No yeah. Easy piece. yeah.
1: And I wrote some sections on stress. I wrote a section, two sections on finding your mindset. A mindset is your medical, I mean, I'm sorry, your mental attitude or inclination, how you approach something. There are many, many different mindsets and the most common one is is the battle mindset, but not everybody identifies with that. So I go through, I think I named four different mindsets in the book. I talk about the battle, the journey, the, ch- uh, the challenge mindset, and the healing mindset. Hmm. So I'm sure there are more, and there's probably people who sit somewhere in the middle. And they have a sort of a blend of the healing and the battle. I mean, so it's not that those are the four and you know, that's uh, the end of it, but it gives a framework so that people can start to do the deep dive and examine that because it, it, I found it helpful. My, my personal mindset was the healing mindset. I mean, I remember sitting in the living room of a friend's house. She happens to be a yoga teacher. Um, actually my blog post this week, last week was about this friend who helped me. She came over and designed some gentle yoga because I was flat on my face. I could not I could barely move. So I sat on her couch and said, I I don't want to go to battle. This Mm -hmm. is not a battle for me. Who am I fighting? I'm fighting am I fighting myself? The cancer is it's part of me. That doesn't make sense for me. That feels so violent and terrible and uh, that's just not me. I don't want to get pink boxing gloves. Like what you know now for the people that have pink boxing gloves, awesome. Mm -hmm go do it. That's, yeah. I mean, it just wasn't me though. Like I just couldn't see that. And I think it's because I'm, I am a healer. That is what I do every yes. day. I go in and I lay hands on people. I listen to them. We share a connection and, and I'm—I we're walking down a road trying to heal. So I felt like I was wounded. And so that was what, that was how I envisioned it.
0: I was healing. Is the idea to like, move from one to the other? Is it like a stackable like process? Or is the idea, depending on what you're going through, these are different frameworks you can adapt based on where you are in that progress?
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, it's very fluid. I think my my goal is that people are aware of what is happening internally so that they can feel all of their feelings, bring the unconscious conscious And this is a way of experiencing a stressful event and not being swept along by the flight or the fight or flight response, because that is only one way to respond to something that's stressful. Mm -hmm. And one of the biases that our culture has now is that, oh, stress is bad. It's terrible. We should not be stressed. It's like, okay, you have cancer. It's stressful. It's just yes. stressful. Like, yes. You cannot make it not stressful. And something that was very well researched and articulated by Kelly McGonigal was that human beings are actually designed to handle stress. Yes. And that's something that in this book, one of the main ideas is you can handle this. You can. And so your mindset should not be... That you can't do it, it's that you can do it, right? And you just have to tap into that core that's there and listen to what's there and figure out what is the best way for you to do that. So, yes, these are stackable mindsets, if you will. And some days you may wake up and go, Yeah, I'm going to battle, you know, I'm gonna. I mean, sometimes I felt like I was, you know, I had the song, the, you know, the fight song in my yeah. head or whatever, but, but most of the time I had sort of like the healing gong, in my head mm-hmm. or, you know, and for some people that's too cheesy and they don't want that. Great. Don't use it. You know, if it doesn't work, don't use it.
0: Yeah. We talk a lot about that too, in terms of, you know, I do a lot of blogging and writing and podcasting and talking. And, you know, I was actually... Very excited. I was invited also doing some public speaking. We went out this past summer to Oregon and was able to be a keynote speaker at their Relay for Life event. And I was so excited about the opportunity. But then at the same time, it was like when you're addressing a crowd and you don't necessarily know what language people are going to adopt to. And, you know, Mm -hmm. while a warrior or a fighter might be really empowering for one, or survivor, Mm -hmm. I know for my friends who with have more advanced stage cancers don't relate to the word survivor. They prefer thrivers or someone living with or healing through cancer. You know, I just wanted to be very cognizant and aware of that. And so to be able to bring that all together in your book and kind of acknowledge the different readers that you're going to be attracting is really important. So that's wonderful. So what are some of these like tactical components of your later chapters? Do you have um, like fun tips or anything that we can talk about? I know, People are always asking in our like Facebook groups or different clothes groups that we run. You know, I'm on X, Y, and Z chemotherapy regimen, my fingernails are changing, or I have nausea, or I can't sleep at night. I think that was the worst was not being able to sleep where you're so tired. And I just yeah. I remember I've never suffered insomnia before, but I just remember lying in bed. Like I could not wait for the sun to rise, just so I could like get out of bed and wake up and like move tirelessly throughout my day. (laughs) Right. So I do have a couple of sections on
1: sleep and insomnia, and there are some basic sleep hygiene measures, which may or may not work. I mean, so, I mean, I can go through a couple of them. First of all is you do want to pay attention and document if you can, what is the reason if there is something that's disturbing your sleep. So I do recommend keeping a symptom journal and a treatment journal. And actually there are many, many formats online. If you want to keep a paper journal, there are also many apps and in the book I list them and you could probably just Google them where if you want to use something electronic, which is a calendar, and then you just log it into your mobile device for tracking your symptoms, you put in your treatment days, and then you can... You know, bring it to your visit to discuss it with your clinician about what sort of symptoms you're having. So for example, things that can interrupt sleep are pain. If you just had mm-hmm. surgery, you're still having pain that can disturb your sleep. If you're having things like nausea, muscle spasms, hot flashes are a big one, both for men and women, because men, when they're on chemotherapy, have hot flashes too, because their hormones get interrupted just the way that women's hormones get interrupted. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for us, the physicians and and the clinicians, if we have something to work on specifically, as opposed to just, I can't sleep. So if you can be specific, and then we can work on that specific problem. Another thing is anxiety, because frequently during the day, if you have your life going on, I mean... I didn't work, but many people do. Many people work still full-time or at least part-time. They only take off one or two days every two or three weeks during chemotherapy. And the rest of the time, you're busy. You go to work. You still have to buy groceries, feed the dog, whatever. But at night, that's when the monsters come out from under the bed. So frequently, it's fear or anxiety that's interrupting your sleep. So Mm -hmm. what I recommend for that is having a good sleep routine, even taking a bath or a shower, but about an hour before bedtime, you want to do things that um, induce sort of are conducive to sleep. And then if it's really out of control, this is the time when you need to use medication. I mean, it's something that is not, there's no shame in asking for help and getting a sleep medication or an anxiety medication from your doctor is, uh, you know, you, there's no trophy for side effects. You don't get a trophy because you went through it without using medication or getting help. Right. Um, I also recommend several relaxation and med- uh, meditation sites, not meditation in the religious sense, but just guided breathing and, and that sort of thing, because that is hugely
0: effective mm-hmm. for anxiety reduction. It's so, great that you mentioned the um, morning grogginess too. So, you know, and I'm very open with my, my diagnosis, my healthcare, everything that I'm going through. Because I do think it's important to be like that that example and that poster child that's talking about it too. So I did take medication to help me fall asleep. And while I don't take it every night, I still have like a little bottle that, you know, in the event that I need it. Because sure. even after your diagnosis, there's triggers that can still kind of flurry up as you're leading up to like your animal yeah. mammograms or leading up to like a checkup or follow-up there's definitely some what i just call it like, the ptsd that sets in yeah and it's sure. my boyfriend's so funny because like it'll be about a week before those appointments and i'll start getting really edgy or like really nervous and i'm like maybe it's yeah. work maybe something's going on something's on my plate and he's like go look at the calendar He's like no laura you do this every every so often like i know what's going on yeah. But then I also have to make sure that I have like a solid eight hours of sleep because if I do take any of these medicines, like sometimes it'll be midnight or one o'clock, like, gosh, I can't sleep. But knowing I have to get up in a couple hours, it really doesn't do the trick. So I think, again, part of that sleep hygiene is kind of knowing what that routine is and allowing yourself to have an adequate amount of sleep or the option to get to sleep in that that amount of time.
1: Yeah. So something else um, that is important when you're on chemo is the issue of infection prevention which I just want to mention right now because we're making this recording during flu season i mean the peak of flu season which it may not be by the time people listen to it but um when you're on chemo your immune system periodically will be very very low usually it depends on which medi- which chemotherapy drug you're taking but usually 7 to 10 days after and then for about a 3 to 4 day period your immune system is really low. So something, one of the chapters I have is on preventing infection. And a lot of it is just very basic stuff, washing your hands frequently, using hand sanitizer. But I go into detail about disinfecting all the raw fruits and veggies that you use in your house, guidelines about eating out, list of foods you shouldn't eat, things like fresh cheeses, any of those cheeses like feta, or I live in South Texas, so Mexican queso fresco. Can't eat that sushi. Obviously, very high risk things. That um, you know, it depends. I, I've, I've come across people who get a very extensive list from their oncology practice, and other patients don't seem to get as quite as much information. And there is there are some oncologists that are more permissive than others, and it really depends on your medication because some really make the immunosuppression that the. the the white blood cells drop a lot and some do not and it depends on you. So mm-hmm. everybody usually is getting their blood checked periodically every week or two weeks or three weeks. So it's one of those things that it's hard, it is hard to make a blanket recommendation. Sure. And so you need to know how how much in danger are you, keep track of it. But Brady Chemo has a recommendation is to stay safe. And it is really important because getting a blood infection and being in the hospital is no joke. I mean, it, yeah. it's not only just miserable and inconvenient, but it, but it's very dangerous. So, yeah. and then it delays treatment because you may could throw you off a whole month. So you stop your treatment, have to get better restart. So that kind of, I'm all about prevention. I mean, I, I, that's, Uh, Prevention of the side effects, prevention of the complications, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, feeling better, taking care of yourself, get through it.
0: Yeah. Would you recommend um, patients partner with a nutritionist also? If you have access to a nutritionist, I think it's a good idea. Usually
1: it's just the larger cancer centers, academic centers that have a nutritionist on staff. Most community-based oncologists or oncology centers don't have a nutritionist on staff. But if there is one, then it's a good idea. And again, depending on what medications you're getting, you might have different issues. Some people have trouble with weight loss and they're struggling to say, eat enough protein. Right. If you, In other words, if you spend a week eating nothing but watermelon because frozen watermelon is the only thing that you don't vomit, you're going to lose weight. Yeah. So you're going to have to go in and figure out, okay, how am I going to get my protein? So I have a whole section on how to get your, you know, a, a section on protein-rich snacks and just lists of suggestions. Mm-hmm. And I, I list how many grams of protein per body weight, things like that. If you, on the other hand, are getting pumped full of tons of steroids, you're going to want a bucket of macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so you're probably going to gain weight, but that's still not a lot of protein. You're going to, you're going to be gaining mostly fat because of, that it's carbohydrate and now again calories are good i mean you you want to avoid weight loss and so i don't again i'm not the most important thing and again this gets back to our blame and shame conversation yeah. but the most important thing is eat whatever you can yes.
0: okay
1: mm-hmm. and so even though i have sections on yes in the ideal world you eat vegetables and in the ideal world you eat your uh you know enough protein but if you are so nauseous or constipated or diarrhea, whatever, eat whatever you can, get your fluids however you can. Yes. Now, back to your question. I didn't forget it. The biggest thing to avoid during chemo are supplements, okay? Like vitamin supplement, you know, vitamin C, vitamin E, especially antioxidants. And the reason for this. Is that we have many studies now that the antioxidants will protect the cancer cells, which you don't
0: want to do. Really? Right? Yes. Oh my we gosh. Are. That sounds yeah, so that counterintuitive. Actually,
1: <laughs> yeah, and so um, so oxid so okay nerd alert nerd alert love it. <laughs> okay, so oxidation is a process in the body whereby your immune system uses reactive oxygen species to kill things. That is what oxidation is. So it is a method of your defense. If you get rid of all the oxidation, you're actually also getting rid of one of the ways that your body is trying to kill the cancer. And so during chemo, you don't want to have antioxidants around. For example, so green tea, you do not want to drink green tea or take green tea supplements during chemo. Vitamin A, C, and E for sure no because those are all antioxidants as well. There are certain specific vitamins that if you are deficient as proven by a blood level, your oncologist may prescribe them. So for example, if you are documented to be low in one of the B vitamins, your oncologist may prescribe one or vitamin D if you have a deficiency. Same thing with iron. Iron is also a reactive species that participates in a lot of enzymatic reactions. I told you this was nerdy. I'm sorry. We can stop soon. No,
0: no, no. I'm all about
1: this. (laughs) So iron is not something that, oh, I'm tired. I'll take iron. No. Only if You So, for example, I was very anemic, meaning my red blood cells dropped very low. I was on uh, a regimen that really dropped all my counts. I had to be on injections to stimulate my white blood cells, but my platelets were low. Those are the blood clotting um, Mm. little cells and my red blood cells. I did not get a transfusion, but I was this close, like every other week for about three months. And I was like, no, 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 I didn't want a transfusion. So, But she put me on iron. But again, I was, I was being good. I was wearing my patient hat, yes. not doctoring myself. I was letting her make the decision because iron is also very reactive and you don't want the iron protecting the cancer cells either. So no supplements unless your oncologist prescribes them. And it's going to be for a documented reason.
0: You mentioned as part of your book, you were talking about befriending medicine as yeah. a topic. Um, that term just in general sounds so intriguing to me. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by befriending your medicine? Many, many breast cancer patients have
1: a medication called adriamidazine. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other name for that is doxorubicin. The nickname for that is the red devil. Looks kind of like red Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard of that. It, it tends to cause a lot of nausea, um, a lot of Constipation for a lot of people, I think, because it's so alarming looking. I really wanted to reframe that, and so I decided I was going to think of my Adram, I said as the red goddess. Mm. And so, my yoga teacher friend went out and found a photograph of the goddess Kali who Mm -hmm. is a warrior goddess and she has, I believe, eight arms and she's making these faces. But anyway, she, I thought that because she's a powerful figure, I thought I'm going to think of it that way instead, because she's, Mm -hmm. she's fighting for me. She's going to rid my body of the cancer. So it helped me do some visualization and it helped me say, I'm, you know, instead of saying, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe I'm having this today instead of being very negative and and dreading it i mean there was a little bit of talking myself into it mm-hmm. but at the same time it helped me really visualize okay the cancer cells are going to die and they're going to be flushed out of my system and you know i've got kali in my corner and i actually didn't feel as fearful yes. i mean because i feel like <laughs> when i would be driving to my chemo appointments i felt like I was signing up to stand in front of a wrecking ball. And so there's that where you're gritting your teeth and you, you want to run, you Mm -hmm. just want to run and you have to somehow find that core to make yourself stand there and let the wrecking ball hit you. Yeah. And so if I could get in my head and say, no, I got the red goddess today and yep, we're going to do this thing. And so befriending your medicine is the phrase that came to my mind. Like, Mm. no, I'm, I'm friends with this. This is good. I'm so glad I can have this. This is an amazing thing. Again, some people might think it's hokey. That's all right. Maybe then this section is not for you. You can skip it. You can just, you can just skip to the diarrhea section. That's okay. (laughs) So (laughs) um But for me, it was helpful. If I got to go and stand in front of the wrecking ball, I want the red goddess there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important to like, again, how we started off the conversation, right? Like the mindset and how we talk about the drugs that we're on, how we talk about our experience and kind of finding that positive attribute that can really help us like get through it all. So how can people get this book now that we've talked about it and it's got such great like tips and advice and tactical takeaways? So the print book is for sale at the gift shop here in
1: my hometown, Valley Baptist, uh, in Brownsville, and it's also for sale in the gift shop at the Stark Center for Cancer Care in San Antonio, which is where I got my treatment. Oh, okay. And it's on BarnesandNoble.com. It's on Amazon. The ebook is available multiple places. Uh, ebook is on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Kobo, and Google Play. And nice. I will say that it's available worldwide. So, uh, I actually have had some sales in Canada and the UK, and Great. it's only in English so far, but the Spanish edition is almost ready. So, oh, I'm awesome. really excited. so cool. Yeah, we have um, probably about 60% Spanish speakers here where I live. So, the mm-hmm. Spanish edition, which is called Afrontando la Quimio, is going to be out, like I said, hopefully, probably in about six to eight weeks. I am very active on Twitter and Instagram. So anybody is, uh, I really encourage people to reach out and reach me. I'm at ND on both Twitter and Instagram. And I do check uh, every day, at least once, and respond to messages and questions. And I'd like to hear how people are doing. And I'll probably be doing a second edition in 2022 which okay. is a long way away but but I will be updating because this is a science-based book so as the scientific data changes which it will mm-hmm. I will be updating the book and putting in more information and of course also the links of resources will change as some resources maybe go away or outdated Same. and other resources come up so you know please send me ideas and tell me how you're doing and what you want and what you need because that's the purpose of the book is just to help you get to it.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. That's wonderful.
1: Well, thank you so much, Laura. It's been wonderful to have a a long format. I think this is probably my longest format and I hope folks enjoy it. And I thank you for your service. It's much needed. So thank you for all your hard work and putting everything together and for having me on.
0: Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving.